Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of 100 Fathoms Under by John Blaine. In this fourth entry in the Rick Brandt Science Adventure series, we find Rick and company on a Pacific island using a sort of diving bell to search for and raise pieces of an ancient temple. This is one of the best books in the series. There's usual interplay between Rick and Scotty, and Rick's dad is actually along for once. The story builds a nice bit of tension by introducing a multitude of characters who all have their own agendas, and unlike some other 1950s young adult series like Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys, you don't know who the bad guys are until well into the book. Between the local natives, the Japanese, and modern-day pirates, Rick and company have some pretty hair-raising adventures. And what's more, it's all fairly believable. Credible science is one of the hallmarks of this series, and this one is no exception. And now, 100 Fathoms Under. Chapter 1. Honolulu Rick Brandt looked up from the book he was reading and grinned at the young man across the table. You look worried, Scotty. Don Scott was staring through the window with the silvery blue ocean 10,000 feet below. Not worried, just thoughtful. Here we are, riding in style a couple of miles above the Pacific. Three weeks we'll be playing tag with the fish a hundred fathoms under it. Trouble with us is we can't decide whether we want to be birds or porpoises. Rick put down his book and stretched luxuriously. He was a tall, husky boy of college age with brown hair and eyes. No bird ever rode in such comfort, he said, glancing around at the lounge of the Pan American Clipper. Not much like the cub, is it? He'd been gone from home only four days, but he already missed the yellow piper cub that was his special pride and joy. He missed Spindrift Island, too. To the rest of the world, the famous island off the New Jersey coast was the headquarters of the Spindrift scientists, led by Hartson W. Brandt, Rick's father. The island was known as the place where new radar discoveries had been developed, and as the launching site for the first moon rocket. The very name of Spindrift was synonymous with revolutionary discoveries in the field of electronics. But to Rick, it was simply home. He always hated to leave, even to take part in an exciting scientific expedition like the present one, and he was always glad to return. I'm a little homesick, he confessed. Scotty grinned. Think you're the only one? He motioned to the two travelers on the opposite side of the lounge. Take a look at those two. Rick looked over to where his father and Chata were seated on a comfortable sofa. Hartson Brandt was holding a book, but he wasn't reading. He was staring out the window, lost in thought. I'll bet no one aboard realizes who he is, Scotty said. Rick nodded. His father was known internationally as an outstanding electronic scientist, but it would be hard for a stranger to connect the name of Hartson Brandt 
with the youthful-looking man in the casual slacks and sports jacket. Mr. Brandt had his son's lean hardness and unassuming friendliness. More than once he'd been mistaken for Rick's older brother. He was an able athlete and an ardent fisherman and swimmer. There was nothing about him to indicate he was a scientist. He's probably thinking about Mom's cooking, Rick said. Stop it, Scotty complained. You're making me hungry. What do you think Chad is thinking about? Seated next to Hartson Brandt was a slim brown boy who had a mischievous look about him, even when completely relaxed. Chada, whom Scotty called a souvenir of the Tibet trip, was a former Bombay beggar boy who had become a member of the Spindrift family by virtue of his courage and loyalty when the scientists sent an expedition to Tibet to set up a radar moon relay station. The quick-witted Hindu boy had done much to extricate the expedition from serious danger. Well, he's probably dreaming about statistics from the World Almanac, Rick guessed. He knew that was a safe assumption, because Chada had been studying a new edition of the Almanac that Rick had given him. In Bombay, the Hindu boy had tried to educate himself by memorizing most of an old copy of the World Almanac. It was the only textbook he had ever had. Chada turned suddenly and saw Rick and Scotty watching him. He rose and came across the lounge. Do you know what? I am doing some arithmetic. With some dope from the almanac, Rick asked. Chada looked surprised. How did you know? Rick and Scotty laughed. Rick's a mind reader, Scotty said. What are you figuring on this time? Chada sat down at the table with them. We get to Honolulu in an hour, yes? Well, Honolulu is 4,500 miles from Strindrift Island. Which means we've traveled over halfway, Rick added because Quagara is 3,000 miles from Honolulu. Chada shook his head. Is Rick a scientist? No, he is being most careless with numbers. Quagara is 3,000 miles, yes, but that is ocean miles. That is what I'm figuring. Rick thought for a moment, then he grinned. You're right. I forgot about the difference between nautical miles and statute miles. He had measured the distance from Spindrift to Quagara Island a tiny dot in the Pacific between the Palu Islands and the southern Philippines, and had gotten 7,500 miles. It says in the almanac, Chada stated, to change to land miles from ocean miles, you must multiply by 1.15157. Scotty shook his head. This Heathen character always amazes me. How can you remember those numbers, Chada? Chada's quick grin flashed. Because I have a strong mind. Scotty is quite the opposite. Scotty has a strong back and a weak mind. Really, you think so? Scotty winked at Rick. Okay, let's see you solve this problem. The ship leaves New York with 20 men aboard. It goes to London. Two men desert. And the captain hires three more. At Marseille, four men jump overboard. And the captain hires two more. The ship goes on to Alexandria and the captain hires five men, but two get sick. Got that so far? Chada had been concentrating. I've got it. Now what? At Singapore, they meet pirates, and three men are wounded. The captain hires five of the pirates. Right, now you want to know how many men are aboard? Chada asked. No, Scotty grinned. What's the name of the captain? Chada puzzled for a while and then shrugged. I, I do not know. 
His name is Jones, Scotty said. How do you know that? Scotty winked at Rick again. Because I asked him? Chada couldn't decide whether to laugh or not. He compromised on this by ignoring Scotty. Anyway, I figured out that Quangara is about 3,800 land miles from Honolulu. What does that prove? Scotty asked. I am ignoring you, Chada said with dignity. Rick smiled. The war between Scotty and Chada was something that never ended. They were the best of friends, always willing to fight each other's battles, but equally willing to fight each other between times. A few hundred miles on top of the ocean doesn't mean much, Rick said. The distance that counts is straight down. The longest part of that trip is going to be that first long dive in the submobile. It would be a very big adventure. Do we know how far down we would have to go? Not really, Rick said. All we have is the estimate of the Pacific Ethnographic Society. They think the Temple of Alta Yuan is in between 500 and 600 feet of water. I guess we can take their word for that, Scotty remarked. I wonder where Professor Zircon and the submobile are now. We must have passed them. Rick nodded. During the night, probably. The Aloha is due in Honolulu tomorrow morning. Professor Hobart Zircon was aboard the SS Aloha with all the expedition equipment, including the undersea craft they had named the submobile and the newly developed sonoscope underwater search device with which they hoped to salvage part of the sunken temple. The sixth member of the Spindrift expedition, Professor Gordon, was already in Honolulu. He had arranged for a suitable ship and had done research on the project with the scientists of the Pacific Ethnographic Society, who were joint sponsors of the expedition. Well, so far, this isn't going much like our other experiments, Scotty said. Everything's smooth as velvet. Praise be, Rick returned. Let's have no trouble on this trip. Bad luck and interference by men who had reasons for wanting the experiments to fail had threatened the success of many of the other spindrift projects. Rick and Scotty had met during one such period of trouble. Scotty, newly discharged from the Marine Corps, had rescued Rick from a beating at the hands of a gang that was trying to sabotage the Spindrift moon rocket. Since that time, Scotty, an orphan, had made his home with the Spindrift Island group. You're getting back into old territory, Scotty. You going to look up any of your friends? asked Rick. Although only one year older than Rick, Scotty had served with the Marines in the Pacific and had been to Hawaii. My friends are all back in the States, Scotty said. Besides, we won't have time. We'll just load the equipment and shove off for Quangara. Hartz and Brant came across the lounge to them. We're about to land, boys. Honolulu is directly ahead. Rick looked through the window and saw that the clipper was already losing altitude. He moved over and made room for his father. Then they buckled safety belts and settled down for the landing. They saw Cocoa Head coming to view, then Diamond Head and Waikiki Beach. They swung low over Honolulu a modern city of brown, white, and green, and splashed to a smooth landing in the Pan-American base between the city and Pearl Harbor. In a few moments they were docked and the steward was opening the doors. Hartz and Brant led the way and Rick followed with a rising sense of excitement. The first long step of the journey was over. A short, stocky man with cropped gray hair came to meet them and greeted the boys as an old friend. He was Professor John Gordon, a former Navy officer and an expert on aviation electronics and jet propulsion. It was his hobby of archaeology, however, a field in which he was a recognized authority that had earned him a 
place on the present trip. Professor Gordon introduced them to Dr. Paul Warren, a tall, smiling scientist with a neat brown beard. He was the head of the Pacific Ethnographic Society and an old friend of Hartz and Brandt. Dr. Warren ushered the Spindrift party into his station wagon, and in a few moments they were rolling through the streets of Honolulu. Zircon arrives in the morning, Professor Gordon told them. I've made arrangements with the port authorities to unload at once. We can leave for Quangara in from three to four days. What sort of vessel is the tarpon? Hartzenbrandt asked. You said she's a trawler in your letter, but you gave no details. She'll do nicely, Gordon replied. She has a steam winch that can handle the submobile and a smaller electric winch with a salvage cable. She has a radio phone and a radio direction finder. I've increased her power plant by adding a diesel generator I got from Navy Surplus. We've leased her for three months with permission to make necessary changes. I've had her holes converted to cabin space, and she's repainted from stem to stern. Dr. Warren chuckled. You should know in advance, however, that there's something rather fishy about her. Rick stiffened. What do you mean, fishy? he asked quickly. Fishy in the most literal sense, Gordon replied. In spite of the new paint, there's a faint but definite aroma of long-dead fish about her. You'll get used to it. My people have planned a small dinner in honor of your arrival, Dr. Warren said. It isn't every day we have the famous spindrift scientists arriving in Honolulu. We'll celebrate at your hotel at seven this evening. Hartson Brandt laughed. Are you impressed by our past accomplishments, Paul, or are you just flattering us so we'll work harder to dredge up some old bones for you to study? A little of both, Dr. Warren returned with a grin. But it is a pleasure to see you again, Hartson. I'm looking forward to seeing Hobart Zircon tomorrow, too. It's a long time since our last meeting. The station wagon crossed a bridge over a small canal, and Professor Gordon pointed out into the bay. City yachts? This is Koalo Basin. Our own dock is just around the corner. Rick looked, but he could see nothing that might have been the trawler. Where are we staying? he asked. The Lahua Hotel, Dr. Warren replied. My own place is too far out of town for convenience, although I would have liked for you to stay with me. Mrs. Warren is getting ready for your mother and sister. I'm afraid she has so much plan they'll be worn out after a month. Not Barbie, Rick said. Nothing wears her out. She has more pep than a jumping jack. Barbie Brandt, Rick's pretty sister, and his mother were spending a week with relatives on the West Coast before coming to Hawaii by ship to be guests of Dr. and Mrs. Warren. The female members of the Spindrift family would be waiting when the expedition returned to Hawaii. In a few moments, the station wagon swung into a long driveway that led to a building almost hidden by a mass of green, fragrant shrubbery. Hawaiian bellboys came running and smiling a greeting. The Lahua proved to be a cottage hotel. The guests lived in small cottages set along shaded walks. After registering, Gordon led the way to their quarters. He had arranged for two cottages side by side and only a hundred feet from the water. The scientists were to share one cottage while the boys shared the other. Rick noticed that his father was deep in conversation with Dr. Warren and Professor Gordon. The older members of the party had a lot to talk over, and they wouldn't miss the boys. Who's up for a swim? Rick asked. Scotty and Chada lost no time in agreeing. They hurried to unpack and get into their suits. Then they raced for the waterfront. A stone seawall ran along the front of the hotel grounds, 
the sandy beach below it. The central path from the cottages ended in an open-air pavilion that was built out over the beach. The water was a clear green, the bottom crushed coral. Rick tested the temperature with his toe. Not much like spindrift. It's pretty warm. Like all boys away from home, he had the habit of comparing everything with its counterpart at home. And at the moment, the bracing cool water of the Atlantic seemed better than the warm Pacific. Chada stated, In tropics, Oymanac does not mention ice bags. Don't be so literal, Rick said. I only remarked it's warm. What are we waiting for? Nothing. Scotty put a period to the word by jumping from the seawall, taking a short run and diving into the water. Rick and Chada were right behind him. Rick swam along the bottom for a moment, then shot to the surface. Whew! he exclaimed. My first swim in the Pacific! He stood waist-deep in water and looked out past the reef to the open sea. For the first time, he felt as though the adventure was really underway. Wouldn't be long before he was exploring the ocean depths from the interior of the submobile. Scotty bobbed to the surface like a cork, and Chada splashed in circles, doing his own variation of the dog paddle. The Hindu boy was just learning to swim. For an hour, they enjoyed the famous water of the Waikiki district, Rick and Scotty taking turns and in instructing Chada. Then, tiring of the sport, they sprawled on the warm sand next to the pavilion. Rick noticed the two men were seated in the pavilion, but he paid them little attention until he heard Professor Gordon's name mentioned. He turned his head and looked up. The men were seated with their backs to him. One was dressed in a well-cut gray suit. His shoulders were the most prominent thing about him. They were enormous, seeming to push out the material of his coat. He had black hair cut rather close, and when he spoke, his voice was commanding, his words clipped. The second man wore stained dungarees and a ragged sweater. He was thin and almost bald, except for a fringe of sandy hair. He spoke in an accent that Rick thought was English. Did you get all the stuff aboard all right? The man in the gray suit asked. Yes, since you called, I got one of the lads, and we nipped aboard with it. Any trouble? Not any. It's been stowed good. See to it myself. Good. Then we'll be all set when we raise Quangara. How about provisions? All stowed proper. I'll be getting back. You coming? Not now. I have a few things to do. At the mention of Quangara, Rick had felt Scotty's hand tighten on his arm. He nodded slightly, indicating he'd heard. He kept an eye on the two men as they rose, lit cigars, and strolled down the boardwalk to the seawall. Not until they started up the path to the hotel did he see their faces. The man with the gray suit was swarthy, and his face was almost square, with a tough chin and a firm mouth. His companion had a long, horsey face and eyes that seemed lighter in color than his skin. Suddenly the darker man half-turned, as though he felt Rick watching him. For an instant, piercing dark eyes locked with Rick's. Then the man smiled and nodded and continued up the path to the hotel. When they were out of hearing, Scotty demanded, What was that all about? I don't know, Rick answered grimly, but we're going to find out. Did you get a look at them? That man in the gray suit, he is what Scotty calls a tough consumer. Chada declared. Tough customer, Scotty corrected. You're right, Chada. What do you suppose they were talking about? Horseface took something aboard ship, Rick said. 
And since they mentioned Professor Gordon and Quangara, it must be our ship. We better check up. If there's anything off-color going on, we want to clip it before it gets going good. Let's go. Scotty stood up. Maybe Professor Gordon will have some ideas. As they hiked up the path, Rick asked, Did I say something about no trouble on this trip? When will I learn to keep my big mouth shut? Chapter 2 Captain Turk Mullane Rick paced the hotel lobby, walking back and forth in front of the couch where Scotty and Chada sat, and then he went to the door and looked out, watching for Dr. Warren's station wagon. Relax, you get to wear a groove in the rug, Scotty pleaded. They will be here soon, Chada added. I can't relax, Rick said worriedly. How do we know what's going on? Those two men may be up to something serious. Well, acting like a caged tiger isn't going to help. Sit down, Scotty said reasonably. The boys had returned to their cottage to find a note from Hartz and Brandt. The scientists had gone out with Dr. Warren and would return at seven for dinner. Since then, Rick's always active imagination had expanded the conversation he had overheard into a definite warning of impending disaster. Had he known where the tarpon was berthed, he would have hurried to the ship and conducted a personal search. If ever I've seen a hard character, it was that guy in the gray suit. He is up to no good, said Rick. Sure, but don't fret about it. We'll take care of him, Scotty soothed. A car spattered gravel in the driveway, and Rick was out the door like a shot. In spite of their professed calmness, Scotty and Chata were right behind him. Dr. Warren's station wagon was just pulling up to the door. Rick saw the car was full of men, but he paid no attention to them, hurrying to his father as soon as Hartson Brandt got out of the front seat. Gosh, I'm glad you're back, Dad. Something... He stopped, seeing strangers getting out. Gentlemen, Hartson Brandt said, I want you to meet the younger members of the party. He introduced the boys to the three members of the Pacific Ethnographic Society. Then, as a fourth stranger followed, Professor Gordon from the car, Rick's breath stopped. It was the man in the gray suit. Here's someone you want to meet, Rick, Gordon said. Turk, this is Rick Brandt. The two with him are Scotty and Chada. Boys, meet Turk Milan, skipper of the tarpon. Rick heard Scotty and Chada gasp and then start chuckling behind him. He swallowed his embarrassment and shook hands with the man in the gray suit. He looked into piercing black eyes. Mullane asked cordially, I've seen you boys before, haven't I? This afternoon, Rick agreed. We were at the hotel beach. I thought so. Digger Sears brought me some supply reports. He's our mate. You meet him tomorrow. He told me that we are almost fully provisioned, barring a few fresh things and diesel oil which arrive tomorrow. We can be on our way in a day or two, as far as the ship is concerned. We want to be able to leave on Saturday, Hartson Brandt said. Professor Gordon led the way into the dining room. It was to be a semi-formal dinner, given by the members of the Pacific Ethnographic Society in honor of the Spindrift Party. The boys fell behind the scientists, and Rick faced Scotty and Chata's wide grins. Cheer up, Scotty jibed. Jumping at conclusions about the only exercise you get. The captain and the other man only were talking about supplies, Chada said, grinning. No bombs. 
Too bad. Well, Rick said, glad you two weren't worried. He was relieved to find that the two mysterious strangers hadn't been mysterious at all, but members of the expedition. Other spindrift experiments had run into unforeseen difficulties, and he had become apprehensive about the slightest indications of trouble. Maybe he had been right after all. Maybe this expedition was going to be as peaceful as a Spindrift Island picnic. At dinner, Rick was seated next to Turk Mullane. Across from them were Scotty and Chada. The scientists, seated at the other end of the table, lost no time in getting into a technical discussion of Pacific natives. Turk and the boys tried to listen, but they were soon lost in a maze of such scientific matters as the cephalic index, language roots, mongoloid folds, and so on. They are making my head ache, Chada complained. Such words. Don't worry about it. I'm baffled, too, Scotty agreed. We'll get Professor Gordon to give us some background dope later, Rick said. His hobby is archaeology. He's the expert on this expedition. Good thing there's one expert, Turkman Lane said, smiling. Gordon tells me we'll be searching for artifacts. I wouldn't know an artifact if it bit me. Neither would I, Rick agreed. He was beginning to like Turk Mullane in spite of his first impression. He asked, Are you the skipper of the trawler when Professor Gordon chartered her? No, I came later. I was taking life easy. Wasn't particularly anxious to get back to work. Then I saw Gordon's ad in the Honolulu Star Bulletin. He wanted a qualified master mariner who knew the Western Pacific and one with experience in handling diving equipment. Well, that business about diving equipment got me interested. I used to be a salvage diver, and before the war was master of a salvage tug. I answered the ad and met Gordon, and he told me something about this machine you call the Submobile. Before I knew it, I was all excited about the expedition and getting the crew together. Is the crew very big? Scotty inquired. No, just Digger Sears, three seamen and a cook. Well, that doesn't seem like enough men to run such a big boat. Won't you have to work pretty hard? We'll stand short watches, four hours on, four hours off. We've done it before. I'm interested enough in the expedition to want to cut corners, save a little money. Salvage dabbing must be exciting, Scotty remarked. Like anything else, sometimes it is. At other times it's just dull, a dull grind. Turk smiled at the three eager faces around him. You lads any idea what you're getting into? As far as I can see, all hands are pretty casual about going down six or seven hundred feet. But that's something to marvel at, let me tell you. Do you know the formula for figuring water pressure? It says in the almanac, Chada started in, one atmospheric pressure for each thirty-three feet of depth. That's right, one atmosphere is fourteen point seven pounds per square inch. That's a lot of pressure. It's what kills divers. It's what's kept men from salvaging ships in water deeper than 300 feet. And here you are, calm as clams, about going down twice that far. But men are going deeper than 300 feet, Chada objected. The record is 525 feet. Also, divers once found a ship at 400 feet. And scientists go very deep, like Sahib Dr. Beeb and Sahib Professor Picard. Turk Mullane looked at Chada with surprised admiration. You've got all the facts right at your fingertips, all right, don't you? He reads the World Almanac, Rick explained. He has more facts in his head than the sea has fish. 
Well, let's examine the fox, Turk said companionably. It's true that a diver once went to 525 feet. He was in an armored shell, and he went down in a lake in Bavaria. And divers in similar armored shells found the treasure ship Egypt at 400 feet. But those armored shells were practically useless. The divers had to depend on mechanical arms for their salvage work, and the water pressure was so great it locked the arms. No, you can discount the armored suits. The only practical salvage work up to now has been done in flexible suits, like the Navy divers wear, and the record dive in one of those is a little more than 300 feet. I'd hate to tear my pants at that depth, Scotty said. With good reason. You tear your suit at that depth, and it would let the air escape, and the sea would push in on you with a force of 140 tons. That's the figure. Take 2,100 square inches for the area of the human body, and apply the formula. Well, the submersible is stressed for even greater pressures than that, Rick put in. So Gordon told me, Turk nodded. I merely mentioned the pressure figures to show you what a great thing it will be if this trip proves that salvage is possible, down to a hundred fathoms or even more. Turk Mullane had put the venture in a new light. Rick had known about ocean pressures and pressure formulas, but it wasn't until the captain put them in terms of a diver in a flexible suit had he appreciated what pressure really meant. Suppose we can prove that salvage is possible even at a hundred fathoms, Turk continued. Can you picture what you'll have started? I do not understand, Chatham murmured apologetically. The greatest treasure hunt in the world, Turk pointed out. Think about it, lads. There are hundreds, no thousands of ships lying just below a diver's reach. He pointed a finger at Charter. Check your world almanac on that. See the list in the almanac of ships sunk in the last hundred years. That's only a part of them. There are galleons loaded with plate and bullions and pieces of eight and cross money and doubloons. Ancient wealth to make your head spin. Turk's voice had lifted in volume until all the scientists were listening. Rick looked at the captain and saw a strange glint in his black eyes. It was odd about Turk's eyes. They were usually as expressionless as two marbles. Even when he laughed, the mirth never reached his eyes. Rick remarked on the fact later as the boys climbed into their beds. I noticed his eyes too, Scotty said thoughtfully. Turk's a hard customer, but I suppose salvage diving is no business for softies. I can't decide whether I like him or not. Same here, Rick agreed. And he cautioned, keep your voices down. He might be taking a walk or something. They had learned that Turk was staying at the hotel until sailing time. He had the cottage diagonally across the path from them. Chada spoke up. What I think is that Captain Turk tries hard to make us like him. That is why he was being so nice tonight. The Hindu boy had put into words something that Rick had sensed during dinner. The Turk was going out of his way to be affable. Well, that's nothing against him, Rick pointed out. In fact, it's in his favor. If he wants to be friendly, we'll meet him more than halfway. Sure, Scotty agreed. Only I think I'll wait until we've been at sea for a few days before I decide whether we'll ever be real buddies. There's nothing like rough weather to tell you what a guy's really like. And on that note, they went to sleep.